This morning's reading is from 1 Samuel, chapter 17, verses 1 to 11. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Ezekiah in Ephes Damon. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered up and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Well, let's pray as we come to this great and powerful and important passage in God's word. Our Father, we thank you for the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. We thank you for what we can learn from the life of David your chosen king, and most of all, what we can learn about the life of your forever chosen king, our Savior and our Lord, the Lord Jesus. And we pray in his name and for his sake. Amen. This is undoubtedly one of the best known events in the Bible, David defeating Goliath. The weak boy David facing up to the mighty Goliath. David's weapons, a sling and some stone. Goliath's weapons, as intimidating as his size, yet David triumphs. I refer to this as an event in the Bible, not a story, lest we ever think that what is described is fiction. It is not fiction, it is fact. The books of 1 Samuel record an important period in the history of Israel. Now, there's an outline on the service sheet with four headings. Number one, terrified before a powerful and frightening enemy. Terrified before a frightening and powerful enemy, that's the passage that Matt read for us. Picture the scene. You've got a picture in your minds. This is well-written narrative. The Philistines, the enemies of God and his people, gathered their armies for battle at one side of the valley. And on the other side of the valley, Saul, the king of Israel, and his army gathered. The battle lines are drawn. Then there emerges from the ranks of the Philistines their champion, their leader, Goliath. His fame is such that his name endures still today to describe a colossus, powerful and frightening, a Goliath. The writer takes his time to describe in detail Goliath's appearance. He was six cubits and a span nine feet tall. His bronze helmet, his chainmail, weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. I don't know how heavy that is, but for sure it's heavy. 
It's a vivid way of telling you how heavy it is. 5,000 shekels of bronze. His weapons, a javelin and a spear. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spear head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. Goliath is a mighty man of war. Just look at him in your minds. Now listen to him. Verse 8, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? In other words, why will you not fight? Am I not a Philistine, your enemy? And are you not servants of Saul, the king you have chosen to fight for you? Am I not your enemy, and are you not servants of Saul, your king, whom you have chosen to fight your battles for you? Am I reading too much into Goliath's words? I think when we hear Goliath's words, the writer of this book intends us to go back in our minds to 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people of God were asking for a king to lead them, why? Let me read to you, chapter 8, 19 to 20. The people said, There shall be a king for over us, that we also may be like the nations, that our king may judge us, and that our king may go out before us and fight our battles. That's what the people of God needed. They needed a king to go before them and fight their battles. They needed their king to lead them. Goliath was a mighty man, but so was Saul. Saul was chosen to be their king because he was a man of stature. He stood out his appearance, his height, his strength. Twice we're told that he was taller than all the people from the shoulders up. If anyone was going to fight Goliath, it was surely Saul. Goliath was a powerful, intimidating leader. He stood head and shoulders above everybody else but so did their king Saul. Surely the people had every reason to look to Saul, their chosen king, to go out before them into that valley to face Goliath and fight him. And then Goliath presses his point. He says, choose a man for yourselves. Choose someone yourselves and let him come down to me. Where have we heard that before? Saul had been the people's choice, not God's choice of king. 1 Samuel 8, 18. The prophet Samuel said, in that day you will cry out because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you. They had chosen Saul because he looked the part, he looked like the leader, the king. They needed a leader like the nations, like their enemies. Saul looked like Goliath. And Goliath repeats his challenge, verse 9. If he whoever it is you send out to fight me is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and service. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel that day. Goliath says, look, it's plain and it's simple. One man against one man. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. That's weak translation. I scorn, I mock. Implicit in his words, I scorn the God of Israel. I defy and I mock the God of Israel. Give me your chosen champion that we may fight together. There is the challenge. 
the challenge from the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people, who will fight me? Choose someone to come out and fight me. The people of God had chosen Saul to be their king for precisely that reason, to go out before them and fight their battles. And so the scene is set, the battle lines are drawn. The people of God gathered, there is their king, they can see their king because he stands head and shoulders above everybody else in the face of this frightening enemy. With his defiant talk, what happens? Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid, terrified before a frightening and a powerful enemy. The people were terrified and their king was afraid. They looked at Goliath, king and people. They listened to Goliath and they were terrified. The people looked to Saul, their king, and he was just as afraid. Now, press pause on two questions. Question number one, who is the enemy we face now? Goliath was the champion of the Philistines, the enemies of God in that particular period of salvation history. The Philistines opposed God's and his people from taking possession of the land of promise. And God had instructed his people to engage with the Philistines in battle with the promise that he would go with them and give them victory. And down through the centuries of salvation history, God has revealed who the true enemy of God and his people is. The enemy is Satan, the prince of this world, the ruler of this world. Satan is real. Satan is as real as God is real. He is the enemy, Satan and his legions. Our battle is against him. And so we do not fight. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. But we do wrestle and we do fight. We are engaged in conflict against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6. And Satan is behind it all. He is powerful. He is frightening. How powerful? Paul writes in Corinthians 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world, Satan, is so powerful that he blinds the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. What prevents people in our world turning in their droves to the Lord Jesus? For surely they must. For surely they must. Is Satan blinding their eyes? Satan holds in his vice-like grip the human heart in its sinful rebellion against God. Satan blinds people from seeing the truth about God, from seeing that Jesus is the saviour they need to forgive their sins, to remove the judgment of God and to conquer death and the fear of death. And you see, when we engage in evangelism, telling people about the Lord Jesus... We are engaging in a spiritual battle with Satan who is blinding them. And if your eyes are beginning to open to the truth, if 
what you were blind to, you can now see. That is not because someone has persuaded you. Or you have come to a logical conclusion that Jesus must be your Savior. It is that. But fundamentally, it is because a battle has been won with Satan. And God has opened your eyes. Satan opposes the advance of the kingdom of God in the world. Satan is at the front line of the gospel's advance in the world, opposing that advance. He is set against plans to train gospel workers and to plant gospel churches. He is set against people being sent out from local churches in mission. We are living at a period of time when the number of people going overseas in mission has significantly reduced. That is because Satan is seeing the gospel advancing at such pace in the world. Satan is against the transformation of your heart and my heart in godliness. We talk about the battle with sin, the battle with temptation. The battle is with Satan. The enemy we face is powerful and frightening, and the world we live in is frightening. Death, the fear of death, the last enemy, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, to be destroyed is death. Now, as Christians, as a local church, we are called to engage in the battle. As Christians, as a normal local church, on the edge of a busy road in a corner in a capital city in Scotland, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against Satan and the spiritual forces of evil. It is not a battle waged with guns nor bombs. It is a battle that is waged with spiritual weapons, words, truth, the gospel, the word of God, And the place we are to be is in the valley, engaged in the spiritual battle, not looking on from the sidelines or from a safe distance with fear. But we are afraid of what we see. We are afraid of a world that looks so powerful in its disregard of Jesus. We are afraid the people will never be persuaded. Question number two, why are we afraid? Because the enemy, Satan, is powerful and frightening. Why are we afraid to fight? Why are we afraid to engage in spiritual warfare? Because it is dangerous. Why are we afraid of death? because that valley is the darkest and most frightening of all. Why are we afraid? Will we walk out into the valley and fight for the advance of the kingdom of God? Will we walk out into that valley not afraid of death? Now, long before we answer that question, there is another question that is far more important that precedes it. Answer the more important, the fundamental question. 
And then ask, or then let's ask as a church, if we will indeed walk into the valley and fight for the kingdom of God, not afraid of anything, not even afraid of death. And the fundamental, the most important question is this. Is there a champion? Is there a king? Is there a leader who will go out before us and fight our battles? Is there a champion who will fight for us? Now, that is a massive difference from saying, yes, tick, it's Jesus, from believing it in your mind, your soul, your heart, your will, and your strength, and realizing how wonderful it is, and what a massive difference it makes to the way we live and what we do. But he is not the leader we would have chosen. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on a heart. Saul looked like a king, but he did not have the heart of a king. God's chosen king does not look like a king, but he has the heart of a king. So let's leave the battlefield. Verse 11. Let's leave the battlefield with Goliath's defiant words ringing in our ears. Who will fight me? Or substitute Satan for Goliath. Who will fight me? And let's look for a leader who will fight for us. Now, that's the second heading, looking for a leader to fight for us, verses 12 through 37. That would be a good title for the books of 1 and 2 Samuel overall, looking for a leader to fight for us. We leave the valley of Elah, the battlefield, and go 12 miles to the east into the hills of Judah into a little town of Bethlehem. Let's read from verse 12. David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah. This is printed in the service sheet. Named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, the next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. Verse 16 is just to remind you when we're back in Bethlehem, that back in the valley where the battle lines are drawn, Goliath takes his stand twice a day. Now, we know from chapter 16, listen to the sermon from last week if you missed it, that David, Jesse's youngest son, the shepherd boy, is God's chosen king. But it will be a long time before David is crowned as king. But he is God's chosen king. God chose David not because of his outward appearance, but because of his heart. David's heart was in accord with God's heart. God chose David because David would trust and obey God. The leader God's people need is a leader who will trust and obey God always. And we're back in Bethlehem again with David, God's chosen king. We are meant to note, I think, the contrast between verses 15 and 16. David's job was to take provision to his brothers in the army at the front. 
but then come home to look after his father's sheep. Back and forward David went, serving his brothers, serving his father. This young man, too young to fight, overlooked. He was a servant, a shepherd, a gopher to his brothers who were the soldiers. Back and forward David went. And all through that time, twice a day, morning and evening, Goliath came forward to Kistan and challenged God's people and their leader to fight. David does not look like, he does not look anything like the leader who will go out before God's people and fight their battles. Verse 17. Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousands. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host uh, was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for a battle army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. All of this is just ordinary stuff, isn't it? Now listen up. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And for the first time, David, who I expect had heard a lot about Goliath, heard Goliath. David heard him. David heard Goliath, and then David saw the reaction of the fighting men of Israel, verse 24. All the men of Israel, when they saw Goliath, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who has come up? It's irony, I think, in the narrator's mind. Is it talking about David? Have you seen this boy who's come up? But they're not. They're talking about Goliath. Have you seen this mighty man, Goliath? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king, Saul, will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Verse 26, David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? Their answer comes in verse 27. But before the answer comes this crucial statement from David. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? This is the first time we have heard somebody stand up for the honor of God against Goliath. Somebody who is prepared to say, who does he think he is, defying the armies of the living God? David is angered by Goliath more than he is frightened by Goliath. This young man with the heart of a king never doubts for a moment that the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, is the living God who has promised to be with his people when they engage in battle with God's enemies. God had promised to deliver his people, and David believed what God said with the kind of childlike, dependent trust that is real and that is genuine and that cuts through all the spin and the caveats. Verse 28, Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down, and with whom have you left these sheep? I know your presumption. 
and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. In other words, who do you think you are, David? You don't have a clue what you're saying. And then these wonderful words, verse 29, written by somebody who understands about big and little brothers. David said, what have I done now? I just said something. But David was not for giving up. He kept talking. He kept asking. Eventually, Saul hears and summons him. Now, listen to the conversation between God's chosen king, who did not look like a king but had the heart of a king, and the king that God's people chose who looked like a king but did not have the heart of a king. Verse 32, David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Goliath, your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Notice servant and king. Your servant, king, will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. What a, a powerful, powerful sentence that is. You cannot do it because you are little and he is big. You cannot do it because he is a fighting man and you or not. David is speaking as someone who is deeply affected by Goliath's defiance of God. David is speaking as someone who trusts and obeys God. Saul is speaking as someone who doesn't. Saul is seeing with his eyes. David is seeing with the eyes of faith. And then this inspirational speech from David. He says, I've been here before. I've been in danger before, and the Lord has delivered me. Verse 34, your servant used to keep sheep. Used to keep sheep. Notice, he's got a new job to do now. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, the picture in our children's story Bibles is of David swatting down this lion or this bear. The picture we should have in our Bibles is verse 37, the Lord who delivered me. The picture we should have is the young boy David with a lion and the bear saying, God, will you please help me? Please deliver me. Were it not for God, then he would have been mauled. And David believes that the Lord will deliver him and God's people from the hand of Goliath and the Philistines, not because of his strength or his agility with a sling and a stone, but because he stands before the enemies of God for the living God and the sovereign God. And Saul said to David, and we commend Saul on this, go and the Lord be with you. We left the battlefield earlier and went to look for the leader who would go before God's people and fight their battles, someone who would lead them in the advance of the kingdom. We left the battlefield and went to look for the leader and found him in Bethlehem. We found a boy in Bethlehem. We found the youngest son, the least among his brothers. We found a servant who served his father and served his brothers. We found someone who did not look like the leader. We found someone who was rejected by his brothers, but we found God's chosen king whose heart was in accordance with God's heart, who was deeply affected by Goliath's blasphemous defiance of God. We found a man, a boy, 
who was willing to give his life for the glory of God and for the people of God. And down through the centuries of salvation history, and David points us to David's greatest son, another boy born in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus, who, like David, was a servant who was rejected, who did not look to the eye like a great leader, but his heart was in accordance with God's heart. He had a righteous heart, a perfect heart, a heart in perfect obedience to God, a heart that was deeply moved in the face of blasphemy against God, a heart that wept over Jerusalem, a heart that wept at the funeral of his friend, a heart that wept at terrible suffering, a heart that wept at war, a heart that wept at the terrible stain of sin and death, but a heart that was not afraid to face up to the powerful and terrifying enemy, even if it cost him his life. Now, verses 38 to 51 is the showdown. David defeats Goliath, or expressed in a way that teaches us what's going on, and that's the third point on the sheet. God's servant king defeat God's enemy by trusting and obeying God. Let's read from verse 38. Again, you can follow with me. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. Notice exactly the same stuff that Goliath had. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go. Now, we think at that point he couldn't go because they were too heavy. Children's Story Bible, there's David, kind of can't, can't move. It doesn't say that. He says, I cannot use this stuff because I have not tested them. What he is effect saying there is that stuff is not the way I fight. It's not the way I fight. It's not how God has told us to fight. We fight with trust and obedience. David took them off, not because his shoulders were weak, but because his heart was strong. And he took his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. David goes to face Goliath with no armor. All he has is his staff, his sling, and his five smooth stones. Now, if uh, at this point, we immediately think the narrative will shift to the action. But it doesn't. It shifts to our conversation. Verse 41, the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bared it in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you should come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. I mean, big weapons. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And all David is doing is holding on to the promises of God's word. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. 
and that all his assembly may know that the Lord says, not by sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's. Every one of these phrases is gold dust. God's servant King David trusts absolutely in the promises of God and the power of God that he will advance his kingdom, that he will deliver his people from the hand of the Philistines. David trusts God and obeys God, and so he goes to fight Goliath. Then the action, which is just a tiny part of this whole narrative. Verse 48, the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David. David ran quickly towards the battle line. David put his hand in his bag and took a stone, slung it, stuck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. Every single movie that's been made of this, and there are quite a few on uh, Amazon Prime. I don't think you should watch them. They're not quite accurate, but they are quite fun. They're great. Yet, every single one, David has kind of three goals before he gets Goliath. It's just one. Jesus didn't need three deaths to defeat Satan. God, in the end, when he found his leader, didn't need multiple attempts. David defeats Goliath by trusting and obeying God. And it had to be David, God's king, against Goliath, the enemy of God. No one else would have gone out Moreover, no one else could have gone out and won the battle. It is the destiny of God's king to fight the decisive battle for the people of God. David said a few verses ago, I used to look after my father's sheep, but now I have a different job to do. It is a battle only the king can fight. He must fight alone. And David faced Goliath in his weakness with a whole different set of categories of how he would engage. But David's defeat of Goliath that day, as I have indicated, foreshadows or points us to the Lord Jesus, God's forever king. Jesus, who stood in the breach and fought for us, he defeated Satan, the arch enemy, at the cross. Only God's king, Jesus, could have gone to the cross. He went once, and it was done. David struck Goliath in the forehead with a stone. Jesus died and said, it is finished. He defeated death. He defeated sin and its power. He removed the judgment of God for believers. And he defeated Satan, the arch enemy at the cross. In his weakness and in his suffering. The difference between David and Jesus but one significant difference is that Jesus had to give his life to defeat sin and Satan and death. Jesus faced up and won the decisive battle with Satan. Jesus went into the darkest valley to fight our battles and won. Now, finally, point four. And there is a point four. You've always got to be suspicious of point four in a sermon, which you'd have point three to end. But you know, point four in this chapter is so important. Lest we admire this story. 
Point one, terrified before a powerful and frightening enemy. Point two, looking for a leader. Point three, God's servant king defeats God's enemy by trusting and obeying God. And then fourth and finally, and oh so critically and oh so urgently critical in the days in which we live, facing up to and fighting the enemy with God's servant king. The account does not end with David defeating Goliath. The account ends with God's people engaging in battle with the enemy, the Philistines. They saw God's chosen king go out and fight the decisive battle for them, but then they engaged. Verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharaim as far as Gath and Ekron, and the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered the camp. Jesus defeated Satan at the cross. Jesus defeated sin at the cross. He took the penalty for sin. He defeated the power of sin and he guaranteed a world free from the presence of sin. Jesus defeated death when he died and was raised to life. The decisive victory has been won over Satan, sin and death, but the battle still goes on. Satan is defeated but not yet condemned to eternal hell. Satan is defeated. Sin is defeated. It's power over the believer defeated, but the presence remains. Death is defeated. But the Christian believer, we need not fear death, for we will be raised, but we live in a world where sickness and death still casts its shadow. We will have to go through death to eternal life. Death grips the unbeliever and the believer sometimes, though it shouldn't, with mortal fear. But beyond death, at the end of this life for the unbeliever, there is an eternal death of living hell with Satan, and that is a terrible, terrible eternity and a mortal fear beyond any mortal fear this world can engender. What a terrible prospect. And people do not realize it because Satan blinds their minds to the truth. And so the believer, and so the local church, on the street corner in the middle of a city, cannot stand, must not stand on the sidelines and look on. We must follow our leader Jesus into the valley and engage in the spiritual battle. We do so knowing that we are on the winning side. We do so because we are forgiven people. We do so knowing that death for the believer has been conquered. We do so because we trust and obey our God. We trust his promises to build his church, to open the eyes of unbelievers to see Jesus. We trust him to watch over us, protect us, deliver us. We trust and we obey. And yes, we are afraid, but we mustn't. We shouldn't. We do not need to stand on the sidelines and watch. We go with Jesus to the point of advance of the kingdom of God. It is much safer to be in the valley engaged in the spiritual battle with Jesus, seeking the advance of the kingdom of God, than watching from the sidelines. Yes, we are afraid, but we are safe and secure in Jesus. We are immortal until God determines otherwise. Our life is an eternity, not here. Our task on this earth. And I think, well, here's how Chalmers will be. 
I think we will be super careful as a church. Really careful. In this time of pandemic, we are being, aren't we? But we will do as much as we are able. We will get out there into the valley. We will engage with the Lord Jesus as our champion. We trust him. We need not be afraid. We need to be wise, but not afraid. We have eternity as another risk assessment. Now is not a time to press pause in the advance of the kingdom of God. It is a time for wisdom, for safety, for care, for caution. But it is a time for action and engagement and to push forward with the gospel. Why? Because most people in the world remain blinded to the truth. And we have a champion. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this powerful passage in Scripture. We pray, Lord Jesus, that we would look to you as our leader, that we would rest in you and rely on you, and engage in the spiritual warfare that is going on, and rightly so, for the advance of the kingdom in this community and in this nation, that we would press on, that we would not be afraid the world is afraid, and that we would see people saved from darkness and brought into light, embraced in your kingdom, embraced for eternity in a world that is so utterly different from this. Help us, galvanize us, strengthen us, unite us, steady us. Encourage us, comfort us, but help us get into that valley with our champion Jesus and engage in the advance of his kingdom. For his sake and for his glory. Amen.